This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Welcome to the PWC-KWHS podcast series for high school educators on business and financial responsibility. I'm Diana Drake, Managing Editor of Knowledge at Wharton High School, and today we are talking about the economic value of higher education and how to help students prepare for managing college costs and debt. During our discussion, we will traverse the rugged financial landscape that surrounds higher education. Students are faced with ever-rising tuition costs, staggering student loan debt, a difficult job market, and the inevitable question, is college worth the investment? I'm here today with two experts who will help us sort through these important issues and offer high school educators some practical insights and advice to help their students make more informed decisions about their financial lives after high school and on college campuses. This is part one of our four-part discussion on the value of higher education with Wharton Management Professor Peter Capelli and PwC partner Michael Denizuk. Here, we provide an overview of the price of college today and discuss the changing landscape of rising college costs. Let's, let's start with the big picture, looking at money in college. We've all seen the headlines. The cost of college tuition is staggering. Some of the latest annual numbers suggest that tuition, room, and board are estimated at around 13500 for public universities, 37800 at private nonprofit universities, and 23300 at private for-profit institutions, and those numbers are increasing year over year. So help us to better understand what is behind these rising costs. Is it driven by college administrative needs, reduced government funding to colleges, more students attending four-year colleges? What, what is behind it, Mike? Uh, thanks, Diana. Let's start with some statistics that further support your question. For at least a century, tuition at selective private colleges and universities has risen annually by 2 to 3% more than the rate of inflation. And in its annual analysis of college prices, the College Board found that most higher education charges continued to outpace the average growth in workers' incomes. Now, why is this? First, the cost of public universities is rising as state funds are cut or allocated elsewhere. Public universities have sustained deep funding cuts as a consequence of the recession our country faced recently. And over the past year, many public universities have been able to moderate tuition inflation because the economic rebound has increased state tax coffers. However, on average, states are providing about 20% less funding per student to public colleges than they were prior to 2007. Another factor driving the increase in tuition, which has affected private as well as public universities, is rising costs based on the objective of most academic institutions to be the best they can in every aspect of their offerings. Let's face it, colleges compete with each other for students by offering distinctive experiences, star professors, new buildings, latest technology, research facilities, beautiful grounds, etc. Let's just take technology as an example. Colleges must offer an education that gives students the tools they need to succeed in the modern economy, and technology can be a key competitive advantage. Top institutions have chosen to maintain and increase quality largely by spending more, not necessarily by increasing efficiency, reducing costs, or reallocating funds. And finally, Diana, I think it's a matter of simple economics, the laws of supply and demand. Universities have found that they could raise tuition at rates that outpace inflation to meet a rising demand. 
according to the National Center of Education Statistics, in the past decade, the number of college-age Americans grew by 3.7 million, and the proportion of 18 to 24-year-olds enrolled in college rose from 35% to 41%. As demand increases and supply remains steady, prices will go up. I think uh, one other thing we might uh, notice here in uh, fairness to the colleges is that the sticker prices don't tell us what most people pay uh, because of financial aid. And financial aid has been going up in the last since the recession faster than the cost of college. So one of the reasons that college tuition prices go up is because there's a kind of redistribution going on, particularly at the private schools, and that is that they are spending a lot of their money on financial aid. So the average family that gets financial aid in the United States now is making an annual income of $100,000. So it isn't just going to people we thought of as being poor anymore. And I think in terms of figuring out what the costs and the real costs are for students to go, it's very difficult because the sticker price doesn't tell you very much about what you actually are going to pay. And you don't really know that until you start being admitted to colleges and seeing what kind of financial aid they'll give you. So I'd like to move on for a minute to student loan debt. Uh, The nation's overall student loan balance is way up, having risen throughout the recent financial crisis. And I'm wondering what the resulting economic impact of this will be. Will millennials delay buying homes, for instance, under the burden of their debt? What's the ripple effect of the financial burden on young Americans? Mike? Yeah, well, Diana, college tuition and loans top the list of money matters that are worrying millennials ages 18 to 29, and 21% of them claim it's their family's main financial problem. Now, one-third of those with student loans are shelling out over $300 per month, and 5% are paying more than $1,000 per month. And according to research from Junior Achievement and my firm, PwC, nearly one in four millennials believe their student loan debt will ultimately be forgiven. And whether that proves ultimately true or not, student debt is still a major issue impacting the decisions of many millennials. And I think everyone knows that a debt load can impact the way someone spends going forward. So there's a collection of studies that the burden of student debt may cause people to make different decisions than they would otherwise, uh, affecting not just individual lives but also the entire economy. And I wanted to talk about three consequences affecting individuals in the economy. So according to research by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Fewer millennials have bought homes since the recession, but the decline has been steeper for people with a history of student loan debt and has continued even as the housing market has recovered. According to Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, home ownership among millennials in the 25 to 34 age group has decreased by 8 percentage points between 2004 and 2013. And more specifically, according to a report on household debt issued by the New York Fed, the proportion of adults in the 27 to 30 age bracket who have a mortgage has fallen most sharply among those who have student loans as well. And that's the mortgage picture. We, we see a similar story with auto loans as well. The second point is people with student loans are less likely to start businesses of their own, according to the study, by an impact of student loan debt on small business formation. 60% of jobs are created by small businesses. So if you shut down Uh, the ability to create new businesses, you're going to adversely affect the economy. 
And this next statistic is probably the most disturbing to me. According to a Merrill Edge report focused on millennials with between fifty dollars and $250,000 in investable assets, slightly over half of the survey respondents had no retirement savings in 2014. And only 35% of those people said that they planned to save in 2015. The survey noted that 65% of student debtors intend to pay off their student loans first and then save more for retirement. So the student loan issue does not only have short-term implications, but could also have an impact on the ability of people to retire comfortably years down the road. You know, one other uh, thought on that um, is to put this in perspective, that at the moment, student loan debt is second only to mortgage debt in the United States. It now exceeds credit card debt. So it's a huge chunk of dough that's uh, sitting out there. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this, I think, later. But it's really burdensome, uh, partly because the nature of the loans make it very difficult for them to um, ever go away unless you pay them off. I think the the students Mike was referring to who are expecting these loans are going to be forgiven are in for a nasty wake-up call because at least at the moment, even bankruptcy doesn't get you out from under these loans. And Peter, I think what you're seeing then in early years, based on what you said and the statistics that I was quoting, is that student loan is replacing mortgage loans as the uh, the key loan that families have in their uh, early 20s after they graduate from college. So let's move on to some questions about the affordability of, of college. Um, President Obama has vowed to make college affordable for all Americans by investing $60 billion over the next 10 years to provide free community college tuition to as many as 9 million students a year across the country. Um, Does this program and other similar efforts suggest that young people reaching college age can expect their next two or four years to be more affordable? And when it comes to managing college costs, is relief in sight? Also, I guess going along with this, what should government do and not do about costs and availability? It's a lot of questions there, Peter. Yeah. Well, I think uh, going back to our earlier points about why tuition has gone up so much, these are largely political choices about how much society wants to spend on education. And I think uh, President Obama's uh, proposal to provide more money for tuition at uh, community colleges is something that, that sounds very nice. I think the problem with it is that community colleges, like most state institutions, but especially community colleges, are really underfunded. And uh, they pretty much are losing a lot of money with every student they take in. So the big problem for students at community colleges is can I get the courses. I mean, even if I get admitted uh, and I can afford to pay, can I get the courses because they're so underfunded, they can't offer enough programs, they can't offer enough courses. So the the problem of offering a lot more tuition assistance basically just ramps up the demand at these community colleges, but they don't have the resources to meet it. So it's kind of shifting the burden, uh, creating a lot more demand onto the local communities, which really are the ones paying for community colleges. And whether or not they'll be able to meet that is is an open question. But I wouldn't, if I was somebody thinking about college in the next couple of years, think it's going to get much easier. Uh, the proposal that the president uh, put forward hasn't been agreed to by Congress, so it's not clear it's going to be. So uh, I wouldn't hold my breath as to whether things are going to get a lot easier. 
I'm going to stay out of the politics, Diana, but I would say that, you know, community colleges do serve as a worthwhile starting point for many students. Uh, but when you look at higher paying professions, particularly in, in, in business like, uh, like I'm involved in, um, it certainly is uh, better to, uh, if you started a community college, to transfer to a university at some point, usually after one or two years. So, Peter, just following on from that, what, what do you feel government should do or not do about costs and availability for higher education? Well, you know, the issue here, I think, politically, is that we always focus on the federal government. The federal government's really not much of a player in higher education except for student loans. About 12% of the budget for higher education comes from the feds. Most of it uh, comes from state uh, governments and local governments. Eighty percent of students in the U.S. go to state universities or state systems. So it's the states that really carry the burden for this. And the states, even before the recession, uh, were squeezed by increasing demand, particularly in states that were growing like Florida and California, and um, frankly weren't funding uh, the universities and the colleges at the level of the demand for them. So they're admitting kids, and they are not providing the support for them. Tuition goes up as a result, uh, but sometimes the states are you know, limiting the amount of tuition increase that the universities can put in, and then they basically end up just not offering many courses or changing the kind of education you get, you know, much bigger classes, fewer seminars, less choices, that kind of stuff. So these are really kind of political choices, and we are – in the United States, we pay about seven times more uh, as private citizens for college education than our colleagues in other industrial countries do. The U.S. pays more for college by far than any other country, public and private. And in the U.S., we spend about twice as much of it in the form of private, that is, our families paying for this. So we've made political choices that make this really pretty expensive for families. Now, part of the reason we did that was because of the belief that it was really going to pay off for you to have a college degree, and so it was okay for you to pay for it yourself and to take out loans to pay for it. Uh, it's not quite clear that that's still the case. And so, you know, politically, it's a, a bit of a problem here. We're encouraging people to go to college. We're telling parents it's important to send your kids to college. It's incredibly more expensive than it was a generation or so ago to do it. And there's a lot of risk involved if you go to the wrong school or you don't graduate, which is really the big, big issue. So I think, you know, like a lot of things in the U.S., these are political questions upon which people have very different points of view, and the lack of consensus explains why nothing much is happening to help. Right, right. And I look forward to talking about that a little bit more in detail later. Um, so we're up against our first question from a high school educator, and it actually involves um, a business term, opportunity costs. Mark Bickler, a business teacher at Port Washington High School in Wisconsin, would like to know how he might address the idea of opportunity costs with students when they are considering where to go to school in relation to the financial commitment. Peter? Yeah, so opportunity costs means basically what else would you be doing if you weren't going to college, right? And the opportunities are kind of limited these days. I mean, the idea that you could, for example, go to vocational school uh, is something that more or less has been cut out of the U.S. system. Vocational schools at the high school level are kind of disappeared. Um, the kind of jobs that you could have had working in factories a generation or so ago and get some 
real-world experience and maybe make some money before you go to college, for example, those are kind of gone as well. Um, but I think there are, you know, there are opportunities for kids, particularly uh, for kids whose families can support them a little bit uh, if they take jobs which are not-for-profit experiences or unpaid or lesser-paid jobs. Doing things in the community, for example, the kind of um, programs that many cities have and some states have too to get involved in public service in different kinds of ways and serving the communities, those things are pretty useful for kids. They help them grow up. And I think one of the things we probably need to remember is that there's nothing magical about going to college at age 18. There's nothing that makes it better for you than going to school at 19 or 20. In fact, the you know the at least the anecdotal evidence and some hard evidence suggests that Students who are a little more mature probably get more out of college. So I don't think it hurts you to delay going to college at all. You don't want to just sit on the couch for a couple of years, though. That's not going to help you at all. Uh, But if there are opportunities to do the kinds of things that you might not be doing after college, it's probably a very useful thing to think that more kids ought to be pursuing some of those opportunities even if they don't set them up well for life afterwards, you learn all kinds of interesting things from those experiences as long as you can find them. Peter, I suppose the, the year or two, if you decided to defer college for a year or two, you could also be working in some job that would help you potentially pay for college going forward as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the aspects of opportunity cost that's gotten worse, of course, is well-paid jobs for kids right out of high school have more or less disappeared. So, you know, if you're living home, you might be able to save a little bit of money. Uh, But for middle-class kids, I'd say more likely they're going to be looking for opportunities to have some experiences that might broaden them and maybe would help them in college, get into a college, or maybe some life experiences that help them become a better person afterwards, and all that's pretty reasonable to do. Yeah, I will point out in the area of opportunity costs, I guess, in comparing colleges, and I think we'll talk a little bit about this later when we talk about costs, uh, you, you don't have to go to the most expensive college to get a good education and get a good job. You know, state universities still offer a very good deal, and, and particularly when you're paying tuition at the in-state uh, as an in-state resident. And uh, just as an example, I went to a state university in Missouri and and had several job offers and a very sex- successful career at PwC. So, I mean, students and parents should research schools focusing not only on costs but on rates of placement in jobs and average starting salaries and reputation among employers, et cetera, when choosing a school. Um, you know, you, you don't have to pay the most uh, to, to, uh, to get good opportunity coming out of college. I think this is, uh, that's certainly right. It is very tricky for parents, though, because uh, it often can be the case that a private school could be cheaper for you than a state university because state universities don't offer as much financial aid as private universities do. If you get into an Ivy League school and your family doesn't have a ton of money, it might very well be cheaper. At Penn, for example, we've, I think, more or less guaranteed that if your family earns $100,000 or less, you get free tuition. Uh, And you won't get that if you go to Penn State here because they don't have deals like that. So one of the reasons this gets so complicated is you've actually got to apply to these different places in order to figure this out. Uh, and that's, you know, it's it's worth doing. It's worth applying to different colleges. It's worth filling out all the financial aid forms. Some of it is a, seems like a pain to do, but I guess I would encourage anybody 
uh, who's worried about this, that um, you could get an accountant to help you fill out those forms if you find them daunting to do, and it's worth paying them to do it because uh, there's a lot of people who are eligible to fin- for financial aid who it turns out never apply. I think it's about 20% of people are eligible and never apply, and that's a lot of money that would otherwise be available. Yeah, Peter, I, I would say that I didn't have any problems filling out any of those forms, but I'm an accountant, so I guess I don't count. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.